Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. Listen each week for updated content and be sure to share with your friends. We hope this podcast is a blessing and a resource to you as you pursue God daily. Uh, Thank you so much for opening up your hearts to us as we open up the word together. And I'm so excited about this series and feel like it has been so appropriate for the season that we're in. Uh, We've been talking about the children of Israel and tracking along their journey from leaving Egypt all the way through the wilderness to the brink of the promised land. And we're calling this series Finding Normal, uh, which I think is the pursuit. It's the the primary question that most of us are asking in these crazy days. What is normal? If you remember the the first week, we talked about moving forward and, and how we got the children of Israel out of bondage. We got them through the Red Sea, and then they stepped into the wilderness. Last week, we talked about cloudy with a chance of manna. Of course, manna being the provision that God rained down from heaven. He fed not just their bellies, but he fed their souls. And so today I want to talk to you. The title of the message is simply this, hitting rock bottom. Okay. Hitting rock bottom. You see in this particular episode of their journey, the children of Israel find themselves in a very difficult position. And some of you know what that's like. Uh, Some of you know what it's like to be in an impossible situation. Uh, In fact, before we dive into this text in Exodus 17, I was praying this week and thinking about how God works throughout history. And you know, the truth is sometimes God isolates before he elevates. Uh, Sometimes God will isolate us for a season before he elevates us into a new season. And that time of isolation is simply preparation. In fact, he did it all throughout history. If you notice, you know, Moses, he was on the backside of a desert for 40 years in a season of isolation. But then he came across a burning bush and God told him, now it's time to elevate. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. Even Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness in a season of isolation and prayer and fasting before he launched his earthly ministry. And here we find the children of Israel in a season of isolation once again. They're in the wilderness and God is preparing them for the promised land. I just want to encourage the church today. Use this time of isolation as preparation because Elevation is coming. Come on, somebody. Are you feeling that like I am? Oh, this is so rich. It's so good. Look at Exodus 17, starting with verse 1. The Bible says, At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Now, that wilderness is not necessarily, it's called sin. That's a geographical location. It's not necessarily an action. Although there was probably a lot of sin in the wilderness going on. We'll we'll see that in just a minute. Eventually, the Bible says, they camped at Rephidim. Okay, I want you to circle that. If you've got your Bible there, write that word down, Rephidim. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Be quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. 
Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us? Are you trying to kill our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, here we go again. We see this theme throughout their journey. It's a complaining people, but they're always met with a gracious God. Okay, I want you to see this. If you're taking notes, write down this first thought. Write down the complaint. Okay, everybody say the complaint. It seems to be familiar territory. They complain again and again. You know, as I was studying this this week, I actually had a sense of compassion for the Israelites. Sometimes I think I'm a little too hard on them because I know the story from beginning to end. We have the vantage point of total perspective, but for them, they didn't know. They were stepping into an unknown future. And, and you know, but think about it. Some scholars say that, that the number of Israelites in the wilderness at the time was somewhere between two and three million people. Come on, that's a lot of people. That's a lot to take care of. Two to three million. Okay, moms, dads, have you ever looked at your kids and thought, what planet are you from? You ever wondered, hey, are these kids even related to me? How are we going to take care of all these kids? You know, I got to have a little compassion because there's just so many Israelites, man. They're everywhere on top of each other. I'm sure there wasn't any social distancing going on in the wilderness. There's a big old group to care for. There was a lot of them. I also think about where they were. They're in the wilderness. I I don't like the wilderness, okay? I appreciate nature, but I don't care to go camping, okay? How many of you, you just love your air conditioning, your electricity? Come on, somebody. I, I, I enjoy living in a neighborhood. I like to close my door at night and lock it and be safe. Here, there's two to three million Israelites. They're in the wilderness on this huge camp out, and the Bible tells us they don't really have a plan. There's no plan. There's just a cloud that they follow daily. How many of you, you do better with a plan? Come on. Some of you need to raise your hand right now. You know you do better with a schedule. I like waking up knowing what I'm going to be doing, knowing what my next step is. The Israelites, they didn't have a plan. All they had was a cloud. And here we see in this particular moment in their journey, they had no water. They were in an impossible situation. No water is a big deal. In fact, I read this recently. Studies show, you know what the leading cause of dehydration in children is? Anybody want to take a guess? What's the leading cause of dehydration in kids? It's bedtime, <laughs> right? I mean, have you ever put your kids to bed and then all of a sudden they get thirsty? You know, it's like the, it's like the, the dad who put his son to bed and, you know, the boy gets in bed and dad leaves and son calls out to his dad and says, dad. I'm thirsty. Can, can you, you bring me a glass of water? The dad said, no, son. Lights out. It's late. It's time for bed. A minute later, boy cries out again. Dad, what, son? He said, I'm thirsty. Can I please have a glass of water? The dad said, son, now listen, we've already gone through this. You've got everything you need. Go to bed. If I hear you ask for water one more time, I'm coming and I'm spanking. Well, 30 seconds later, the little boy said, dad, when you come and spank me, can you bring me a glass of water? <laughs> you know, the boy was thirsty. You know, here are these Israelites, they have a very natural, legitimate need, and they have no idea how it's going to be met. And so what do they do? They complain again and again. Why is it that it's so easy to complain? Have you ever noticed how easy and how contagious 
complaining is. I mean, we complain about anything and everything. You know, sometimes we pray, Lord, I just need a car. And God gives you a car, and then you complain when you get stuck in traffic. Or you pray, Lord, just give me a house. I'm believing for a house. And then he gives you a house, and you complain that you got to clean it. Uh, or some of you have prayed, Lord, I just want to slow down and be able to invest in my family. <laughs> and the last two months, you have slowed down, and you're praying, when can I get away from my family? Uh, come on, can I have a good Amen. Some of you are afraid to say amen. Some of us have prayed, Lord, if you just give me a husband. And then God gives you a husband. And you complain that you have no more freedom. Uh, some of you pray, Lord, just give me a wife. And then you get a wife. And start complaining about not having any money. It's amazing how we, we complain about the things we, we prayed about. What, what used to be a blessing now becomes a, a source of frustration. Here the Israelites are in this newfound freedom. Uh, but they're tormented, the Bible says, with thirst. And they complain uh, against Moses. They complain to God. In fact, I want you to write this down. I, I think this is important. But a complaining spirit will cause your life to go in circles. Uh, w- when you complain, it's amazing how you see the journey of these Israelites. And they circled in the wilderness again and again. Complaining will cause you to go in circles. You see, God's best for us is to move us forward. But complaining causes us to go around the mountain again and again and again. When you complain, you remain. And that's exactly where the children of Israel are right now. The Bible says that they, they camped at a place called Rephidim. Okay, now this is important because Rephidim in, in the Hebrew, it literally means rest or refreshing. This was a place that was supposed to bring refreshment to the Israelites. I was thinking it's kind of like, you know, if you've taken a long trip and you pull over on a, you know, to a rest stop, it's kind of like the Bucky's of the wilderness. Remember Bucky's? Have y'all ever been to Bucky's? You know what that, that is? I love Bucky's. It's, it's almost like a, instead of a rest stop, it's a destination place. Bucky's is like a, an Exxon that, that, that got married to a Walmart and had a child called Cracker Barrel. You know, it's a place where you can get gas, where you can get a t-shirt and you can get a brisket sandwich all in the same place. You know, Rephidim was supposed to be that place of, of, of rest and refreshment. But the Bible says there was no water at Rephidim. And so they turned that place from a rest stop into a courtroom. Okay, check this out. Look at verse four. And I notice the language here in verse four. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. You see, the, the people were complaining to Moses, and then Moses starts complaining to God. He says, what am I going to do with them? They're, they're ready to stone me. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, he said, Mo, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk out in front of the people. Take that staff. Remember that staff that I gave you? Take your staff with you, the one that you used when you struck the water of the Nile. And then I want you to call for some of the elders of Israel to join you. I'll stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Now notice, first of all, the complaint, but now I want you to see the courtroom. Okay. This is an interesting 
picture. I love how the Bible gives us different metaphors to illustrate and to help us understand. But the language in these few verses is very intentional. It's, it's judicial. I want you to see Moses says, they're ready to stone me. What is he saying? He's saying, in the mind of the people, I'm already guilty. They've complained every step of the way. Everything that I tried to do for them has turned against me. They're ready to stone me. That means they're guilty. You know, or, or Moses says, man, the verdict is in. They want to kill me. Notice what God says. He says, Moses, take your staff. Now listen, that staff was the rod of God. I mean, this, this rod, this staff represents authority. In fact, this is a message that God's saying, judgment is coming. That rod represented judgment. Remember, that was the same rod that had judged the nation of Egypt. One miracle after another that God had provided through Moses came at that staff. Moses, take your staff, this symbol of authority. And then he said, I want you to call for the elders. What is that? The elders would be the witnesses, okay? We see what's happening here. The rod of judgment is going to fall. Um, The verdict supposedly from the people is already in. They want to stone Moses. God says, call for the elders. We've got to have some witnesses here. And the complaint has already been filed. The people of Israel, in a sense, become the prosecutor. Now, let me ask you this. This is the picture of a trial. I want you to see this courtroom scene in your mind here at this camp in Rephidim in the wilderness. But let me ask you this question. Who is it that's on trial? You say, well, Mike, isn't it Moses? Don't they want to kill him? Notice the language that God uses in verse 6. Read that with me again. He says, I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Now notice, I think this this is very purposeful. God is saying, I will stand before you. He didn't say, I will sit and preside over you, but I will stand before you. It's the same language as standing before a judge. God's saying, I will stand before you as the defendant. You're like, well, wait a second, Mike, isn't Isn't God supposed to be the judge? This is one of the amazing moments in this story. We see a picture of God here, not on the judgment seat, but a God that's willing to put himself on trial before his accusers. God becomes the defendant. It's like God saying, Moses, I know you think they're coming at you, but listen, you stand over here. I will take your place. This is powerful. This is shocking that God is willing to put himself on trial. It's unheard of. I mean, you know, in the Bible, when someone would stand before someone else, it's always the inferior that stands before the superior. But here we see the supernatural sovereign God humbling himself in a way where the superior presents himself before the inferior. Uh, Hear me, church. Uh, There is no other God like our God. 
that no other God in, in all the world, of all the religions that are out there, nobody does what our God does. You see, this is how the God of the Bible sets him apart. He sets himself apart from everything else. You see, every other religion in the world says, here's the mountain that you have to climb in order to get to me. But God's saying, here's the mountain I came down from in order to rescue you. Oh, that's so good. In this courtroom, with all the judgment and the accusations and the demands, here we see an all-knowing, all-sovereign God coming down in such a way where he's taking Moses' place. This is massive. You see, the people deserve judgment, but what they're met with is mercy. That's good news because the truth is this, what you and I deserve, but what we get are two very different things. We deserve judgment, but what God gives us is mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You see, grace is not deserving what you get. All the good things that we get, we don't deserve that. That's simply God's grace. But mercy is not getting what you deserve. I mean, we deserve judgment. Our, our sin demands a price to be paid, but yet what we get is not judgment. We get God's mercy. Uh, I love this scripture in Romans 2, verse 4. Uh, the Bible says this, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? You see, listen, it's the kindness and the patience of God. Oh, I'm so grateful for that, that even in my worst, God continues to give me his best kindness and patience. You know, I begin to think as a church, you know, we can't be a healing place for a hurting world without kindness and patience. Oh, we've got to walk in a spirit of kindness when it comes to the craziness around us. Patience when it comes to the pressure that we sense and that we see. You know, if we're going to be that place of healing for all the hurt and pain in this world, it would do us good to walk with some kindness and some patience. I'm reminded of the, the story that I heard of, uh, about a, a first grade teacher. She was talking to her first grade class about loving kindness. And she asked the class, well, what, is, what is loving kindness? And you can imagine how difficult it would be to, you know, for a first grader to answer that question. And one little boy in the back, he raised his hand. He said, yes, ma'am. Um, well, if, if I were hungry and you gave me a piece of bread, that would be kindness. But he said, if you put a little peanut butter and jelly on that bread, that would be loving kindness. Come on. It's like at a whole nother level. I'm so glad God, he's not just giving us bread, but he's giving us a little PB and J. Can I have a good amen? Now, see this courtroom. I mean, the, the, the script is flipped. God says, Moses, I'm going to stand in your place. Their judgment, their anger, it's not toward you. It's toward me. I will stand before them as the defendant. Now, look at what it says in verse 7. Now, Moses, he named the place Massa, which means test, 
and Meribah, which means arguing or lawsuit, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? You see, the whole focal point of this trial is to answer that question. God, are you with us or not? Is the Lord really with us? Here we are in this wilderness. I know you gave us bread, but Lord, now we're thirsty. Man, we're, we're dying of thirst here. What in the world are we going to do? God, are you really with us or not? This is incredible. God is on trial. And the, the question put before him is, are you with us or not? I'm thinking, Lord, isn't this obvious? I mean, think of all the things that God had already done for the Israelites. You forget you had been slaves for over 400 years in Egypt. You forget that God delivered you from bondage. You forget how God parted the Red Sea and brought you into a new place. You forget that in your hunger, he provided food. He rained down bread from heaven. You forget that he gave you a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. It's amazing to me how their thirst caused them to forget. Their thirst was greater than their memory. Their thirst was greater than their experience. Their thirst was even greater than their theology. All they could think about was their thirst. You know, I think there's a question that many people ask today. You know, in the middle of this pandemic, God, are you with us or not? Sometimes we put God on trial when we walk through difficulty, when a marriage falls apart. We had hoped it would be forever, but then our spouse files for divorce. When a kid gets sick or even passes away, God, are you with us or not? growing up as a child, maybe we were mishandled. Maybe we were abused. Maybe it was physically, emotionally, even sexually. Uh, Lord, are you with us or not? Maybe you've lost your job. Your source of income has dried up and you wonder, God, are you with me or not? Uh, maybe you're just trying to, to, to press reset. You got to start over. Lord, are you with me or not? That's the question in the middle of the wilderness, in this, this place that was supposed to be a refreshing place, God was put to trial. Look at what it says here in verse six, the last half of verse six. Here's the instruction that God gave them. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock and he did it just like he was told. And guess what happened? Water gushed out as the elders looked on. Now, now first of all, we, we saw the complaint. It was very obvious what the people wanted and what they argued for. Then we see the, the courtroom. It's amazing who's actually on trial and who's sitting in the seat of judgment. But now I want you to see this last part. Number three, the conviction, the conviction. You see, conviction is a pronouncement of guilt. Uh, notice what's happening here. There's a rod, which is the picture of judgment. And that thing is coming down. And God said, Moses, you strike the rock. Now that word strike is very aggressive language. It's not just tap or touch. 
but it's to crush. It's to kill, to destroy. I want you to take that rod of judgment and I want you to to hit the rock with everything that you have. Now think about it. A rock is the last place you would predict water to come forth. Interesting how this this, this scene plays out. It's so strange. Food that falls from heaven, water that comes from a rock, But Paul helps us here. I want you to see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He helps to summarize this and give us a little bit better understanding of what's actually happening. Look at what he says. Paul said in verse 1, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. And all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Look at verse 3. All of them ate the same spiritual food, And all of them drank the same spiritual water for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. Amazing here. Here's what's happening. Paul says this little episode, this little trial, this courtroom out in the wilderness, when Moses hit that rock, that rock was a picture of Jesus. You see, all of this points to Christ. You see, the rock had to be struck so that you and I could drink. The, the, the truth is that rod should have fallen upon the people. The people really deserved the judgment. But God says, take that rod, don't strike the people, but strike the rock Because from that rock, from the crushing of that rock, something supernatural is going to flow. You see, in this, there are two two important lessons that I want us to really grab a hold of in the wilderness. And it's not just for the children of Israel thousands of years ago, but this speaks something to us today. When God gave them manna, okay, I want you to consider this. Manna, this bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That manna was a picture of of Jesus. Think about it. They didn't know it then, but looking back, we see that bread, that manna is Christ and his incarnation. When Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago, the bread in the wilderness was symbolic of a bread that would come from heaven wrapped up in flesh. His name would be Jesus. That bread, that manna is God saying, I am with you. I'm with you. That's the whole question of this trial. Uh, God, are you even with us? And the manna says, I'm with you. But now look at what the rock says. That rock had to be beaten, had to be crushed. If the bread represents Christ's incarnation, this rock represents his crucifixion. And when he was beat and when he hung on that tree, the, 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 the Bible says that his crucifixion created something for us, a plan of salvation. It's God's way of saying, I am for you. You see, the manna says, I'm with you, but the rock is God's way of saying, I'm for you. And church, I want you to receive this, not just with your mind, but with your spirit. This is big because in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of our wandering and our wilderness, we can be convinced of these two things. Number one, God is with us. And number two, God is for us. 
you see, God was on trial this day in the wilderness. But I want to tell you this. This wasn't the last time God would be put on trial. God was put on trial 2,000 years ago in a city called Jerusalem. He had his accusers. Uh, the mind of the people was already made up. I mean, you, you know the story. I mean, uh, Pontius Pilate felt Jesus was innocent, but the, the angry mob that stood before him pressured him, and he finally just gave in to the will of the people. Here Jesus is, the innocence of heaven, on trial before ungodly men. And what happened? The gavel sounded. The verdict was given. Crucify. Crucify. Jesus carried his cross outside of the city on a hill called Golgotha. The Bible says that there he sacrificed his life on that hill 2,000 years ago. Matthew's gospel is very intentional. At the end, to confirm his death, the Bible says that a Roman soldier took a spear and plunged it through the side of Jesus. What was it that flowed from his side? Two things, blood and water. Think about it. That blood represents the Passover when that sacrificial lamb would be given. That water points back to this episode in the Old Testament. The rock that was struck and water came forth. You see that water that's spilling out of this rock, that same water that, that came from the body of Jesus, it, it speaks the same message then as it does today. Not only is he with us, but he is so for us. The scripture tells us water came gushing out. Not a little trickle, not a little stream, but a mighty river. Grace upon grace gushing out. Uh, I thought about that even, even today. Gushing. You know, one of my favorite candies, I love fruit gushers. You ever, you ever eat, tried a fruit gusher? Oh, they're the best. I mean, man, they're, they're sweet on the outside, but when you take a bite, what's on the inside is that fruit juice that just comes, mmm. What's on the inside is just spilling out. That's awesome. I thought about what's in the heart of God. And when that rock was struck in the wilderness and when his son was smitten on Calvary, what oozed out of him was grace upon grace upon grace. That grace is available to you. It's available to me. And it's here for us today. Some of you, maybe you're here and you say, Mike, I feel like I've hit rock bottom. Maybe you've hit rock bottom and you, you don't know what your next move is. The good news is Jesus is the rock at the very bottom. And how you rebuild your life is on that foundation of him and him alone. Amen. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and subscribe so you can become a part of the community here and stay up to date with what is happening at Healing Place Church. For more information about HPC, visit healingplacechurch.org.